BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Hey guys, welcome back to the Art of Craftsmanship podcast. My name is Dustin O'Hara and I'm here with my brother and co-host Devin. Hello. And we are joined today by a good friend of ours, Tom Simons. Good afternoon, internets. (laughs) All right, I got another quote for you guys. It is good to love many things, for therein lies the true strength. And whosoever loves much, performs much, and can accomplish much. And what is done in love is well done. Uh, I like that's excellent. Any any guesses who that was? I know Uh, it could be anybody. Jesus, Ralph Ralph Waldo Emerson, Vincent Van Gogh. Oh, nice, perfect. Much to talk uh, about sacrifice for art with Van Gogh. (laughs) <laughs> right and that's a that's a good um as a maker of a lot of different things and a lover of a lot of different things that's a good quote that's the kind of like you know uh um what's it master of none uh jack the, of all the handyman trades. yeah jack of all trades master of none <laughs> you right. love much and you do much yeah that's i, I think that's us and then i think that's tom yeah L- lover of many things and uh just indeed uh, yeah yeah <laughs> that's yeah I, I think um that's funny that that's from Van Gogh because although he did do a lot, you know, a lot of different, I don't know, his, his work seemed pretty narrow, pretty specific to the time. But I mean, I guess that's all of us, you know, we kind of work in our time. I imagine he was a big thinker though. Didn't you think he thought a lot about what he was doing? Yeah. Yeah. He definitely, he definitely pushed the boundaries of concept in his artwork. I think the time we live in being post enlightenment thought is the deep think right and being renaissance men like you two are we like to dabble in all these different things and by doing different things it expands our thinking exactly yeah you can accomplish much and what's done in love is well done right he's just saying love what you do and and you can have a bunch of things right love is something that's something i tell my students actually to maybe jump ahead and then we'll come back to it is that i tell them to to choose to work on something they'll love because if you love it, you'll spend more time on it and it'll mm-hmm. show in the work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I agree a hundred percent. I think that, you know, giving, giving students the ability to choose something that they want to do that will, uh, that will, you know, make them feel good about it. Then it's going to have their own drive to do it. You don't have to force the drive on them. 
they want to do they want to do it because they love what they're doing yeah and you can teach them easier i used to love uh history classes a lot more when the teacher obviously when the teacher tells stories other than just throws dates at you right right oh yeah absolutely my my, i would say my favorite uh grad my favorite maybe my favorite art teacher of all time was a teacher that i had in grad school that was just so passionate about everything he just loved to be around beautiful things and and just you know excellent things it didn't have to be i remember one time specifically we had a model and the model had a big nose and he was just like oh look (laughs) at this model's nose it's fabulous it's amazing he's got this big old beak on him like you guys have to get this everyone's got to be drawing this nose from the side it's beautiful and just that excitement and that exuberance was so contagious and as soon as he did that i was like man i have to do that in all the classes that i teach from now on to show the excitement was the model hurt by that or or did he appreciate (laughs) it i don't know he had great hair i guess you're complimenting but once you call it a beak that's uh (laughs) that that might hit deep on him i wonder if they blushed (laughs) look at his bird form (laughs) this bird body (laughs) get out of here bird Uh, someone throw bread at him (laughs) he's hungry he was just again it was just that contagious excitement about what he was seeing but I'm gonna um, I'm gonna introduce our guest today. So Tom is a longtime friend of mine. We met in our freshman year of college, yes. and became pretty much close friends. I would say pretty right away. You know, we had a, a group of friends we were all friends with, and just we all hit it off. We were very like-minded people, and we had a great time in college. And we've been friends since. And out of all of our friends, Tom's stuck around the area closest to where we all are in uh, in Maryland, and so I get to see him a lot. Which Woo-hoo. is always wonderful, and he's uh, he's graduated to family friend now. Yeah, exactly. I, I believe I was taken from uh, your mother's womb uh, in some kind of alien abduction, <laughs> and I was exactly. shown the computers of the alien race from Zunthar, and then yeah. I came back to Earth <laughs> resembling the O'Hara clan, but <laughs> the- choosing a wildly different route. And they said, just go be a family friend now. Yeah. And yes. he said, why did you take me away from them then? This is, this why did you take me away? Well, and you if, you guys, on your own. if you guys know what Devin and I look like, if you, if you obviously, if you watch us on YouTube, you know what I look like. And, you know, Devin looks like he's very similar to me. Tom, really similar. So that was the other thing we had in common out of all of our artists, you know, little artist friends at Micah, Maryland the big College Apart. We were, yeah, we were the, the 200 club. The 200 team. club, you remembered it, yes, because there <laughs> were some right. skinny skinny people in art school. And Dustin <laughs> yeah. and I loved the all-you-can-eat section of the cafeteria. Oh, yeah, there you go. 200 plus plus. 200 plus Two, plus, yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, it was a good time. So, Tom, tell us a little bit about your story, like kind of how you got into art and what you do, and uh, yeah, and a little bit more Certainly. about Certainly. I think I have an unusual entrance into art. Uh, maybe the thing everyone had in common being artists is the creative outlet was always my first. I was drawing in some kind of sketchbook or loose leaf paper ever since I was four, uh, maybe earlier. Quite a quiet kid at first and shy, so I, I sought recognition kudos from my classmates and friends through drawing and that was a a reward system that gave me endorphins growing up and then I got into theater I think when I was 13 my my brother and my mom and my sisters all suggested I do something to socialize me a bit and I like to sing in church so my mom suggested I try out for some theater it was completely embarrassing at first you know 13 year old voice cracking somewhere between an alto and a baritone and trying to sing some Beatles tunes embarrassingly in a class full of (laughs) a hundred students of of whom I had crushes on several of them 
I just right, got scared because my monitor went dim for a second. That was weird. Oh, There's aliens attacking us in Shrewsbury. <laughs> maybe we won't cut any of this out. Maybe this is just all part of the <laughs> the, the podcast. Yeah, yes. um, so Orson wait. Wells is going to chime in. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. There's been an alarm. <laughs> Martians just, on yeah. tripod legs. Do you want to <laughs> tell what Tom does? You introduced how you met him. You didn't tell oh, me what he does. I love Tom. I could talk what I, what I do. I yeah, let's start with what I do and go back. I spent 15 years making 3D and 2D art for video games. So I've had some very good success working with some very talented people in the Hunt Valley, Maryland area uh, in the video game world. So where Dustin and I met was just through the general fine art program at MICA, but I went off into the animation and video production realm. And it's it's funny uh, that uh, Devin I knew before he went to college and then when he went to film school i was thrilled i was like yes that's awesome i know something about that very very cool so i didn't know whether i wanted to go film or games you know i didn't even know games was a career when i was in high school or middle school i like playing games sure counter-strike half-life sega genesis games oh yeah uh, what's the nintendo 64 one goldeneye Remember oh, GoldenEye? Throwing knives games only? of all time. Oh, awesome. So awesome. I love video <laughs> Proximity games. Mines. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, Tom, I actually had the opposite path of you. I wanted to do video games in high school. I always thought maybe I'll, maybe I'll make video games. And then I thought maybe I didn't want to be inside all the time. And my mom said, why don't you go to film school? Why don't you make movies? And that was a light bulb. Like, ah, so it was the opposite. And then, Tom, I do remember before I went to school, because Dustin's five years older than me, for everyone who doesn't know. And I used to hang around him and his friends in college. And I remember probably uh, one of the first few times I met you, Tom, I remember us discussing film and going deep into yeah, that. Yeah. And that was always fun. Yeah, I was Devin inspired. Oh, go ahead, Devin. I was going to say, yeah, Devin did a lot of that stuff in high school. He did a lot of um, home movies. He made his own movies all the time. And just I, I remember seeing the progression of editing ability and then you know just it's funny he made this one really long movie that just kept going and going <laughs> like it worked on it for two years or something you know and just kept on building wow. on it and building on it and from the beginning to the end the editing quality because you were always just adding stuff onto the end of it and kept it going so it was like <laughs> the editing quality kept getting better better we had this great scene where we were running through a cornfield and we we're i was holding the camera and devin's running along so we're sideways <laughs> running and it was like that awesome you know signs scene of cornfield and scary chase scene i think it was so cool yeah <laughs> so but yeah sorry uh, sorry to Dustin stop, didn't stop make you, it Tom. Oh, that's fine. We're no, gonna keep, keep, yeah, talking keep going to each other. I, yeah, no, I was just saying because <laughs> you said when we met. Yeah, so it's the the film connection there. I always like when you had a band. I filmed one of your shows with. Uh, w- all right. When you played uh, the Maryland song at Auto Bar, was that before mm. college or a- that was probably after you went to film school, right? Yeah, that, that was after after I came back. And my oh. sound quality was terrible. I know nothing about microphones. That's where I gave up on film. <laughs> I don't have the love for audio like you do. That was the, well, I remember we wanted, we, I think I had said that we were going to get a copy from the soundboard, but we forgot to bring any type of USB or anything for them to to record it on. And I talked to sound guys, do you have anything? He's like, no, man. So (laughs) I was like, I guess, I guess we'll have whatever sound from the camera. Oh, it sounds terrible. And it's rough, you know, for, you need, you need. You need direct feed from the soundboard to get any type of good live. It was a great looking video though. <laughs> that's on YouTube somewhere, and that's um, me, myself, and uh, my guitarist, my lead guitarist. We play the music for the Art of Craftsmanship 
right. uh, channel. Yeah, and that's all the music we play yeah. anymore. That's all the band ever plays. But that's right. Much our, calmer. Our and, viewers ask that quite often. There, they ask, "Where's the, what's the music from, or who, what's the music? Where's the where can we find this music?" And I always say, "It's you know, it's Devin recording with some bandmates of his, and those are his bandmates from his band." Yeah. Part, so, part of the renaissance aspect of your lives is your family's always been musical. Your father, your mother, uh, they always liked singing songs, family songs, yeah. Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Uh, that yeah, was a, always a staple of hanging out with the O'Hara's was there was a guitar or five. <laughs> Sally would be singing in the other room. Yeah, when we did, we had that growing up. That was always something I always loved. We had what we called jams, and so my dad and my mom and their friends, you know, maybe six or seven other couples, we'd all get together, and everyone had kids around our same age. So all the kids, we'd all go play outside or or you know run around, and my parents and their friends would all jam. They'd play music, and it was all that same stuff, all, all classic rock. That's yeah. what we grew up on. We were always bored by it, and then, uh, <laughs> then around thirteen or fourteen, we started. Oh, maybe we'll hang around. This is kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the guys who played guitar were always the coolest. They were always the coolest people. And I wanted to be cool. I, you know, I'm a big clumsy guy. I got fat fingers. I'm used to playing video games. I don't know what I'm doing with stringed <laughs> instruments. And then I dated my the first girl. I dated at Micah uh, had a bass guitar, and I was like, wow, uh, she could play bass guitar. Maybe I could play bass guitar, and. God, I hope that doesn't sound sexist today. But I just, if someone was playing bass and, they, and I had bigger hands, I could reach more of the notes. Surely I can do it too. So I ended up sneaking into her apartment and stealing her bass every once in a while and just playing, jamming <laughs> yes. around. And I realized very quickly that everyone had a guitar, but very few people had a bass. So if you could just yeah. show up with a bass, the guitar players were thrilled. And then oh, suddenly yeah, oh, you were yeah. in. Suddenly I yeah. was in the cool crowd all of a sudden because I could show up and play bass. And I didn't even have to play much. It would just strum one note over and over again. Just hit C over <laughs> and, and over again. Yeah, I mean, as a musician, as a guitarist, I mean, when you got someone playing bass along with you, that makes it sound so full. It just fills the room with sound because you hit those low notes, and mm -hmm. if they can play along and stay in the same key, oh, it's golden. And it's a very, um, it seems simple, and it is to learn bass six, to go <laughs> along with just the notes, to, but to make it sound good. And it's also bass is like a drum kit. The second you misstep, everyone knows it. Everyone right. knows it. If a drums roll or you start getting off beat, every everyone can hear it. As a guitarist, you hit the wrong note, you just kind of let it ring out and let it go a bit and let it hang. <laughs> and then mm -hmm. you roll into your next note, and it's kind of, oh, that's kind of right. a funky style he's got. But if you screw it up on bass and you're not right with the rhythm, you're the rhythm section with the drums. Oh, yeah. Then then it's not a funky style. It's You're, you're a shitty bassist. <laughs> I heard but, a critique of one of, my, one of my bass playing one time. I think our good friend Brandon Hall was really missing the drum kit. And Brandon's one of these Renaissance men that yeah. is just an amazing singer, trumpet player, artist, teacher up in New York. I hope I hope you have him on the show for sure. Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, he got a, a hi-hat and a, a snare in college, and we jammed his bass and snare drum in the <laughs> garage awesome. behind our apartment on 1403 Park Avenue. Nice. And the reviews were, what is that racket? What is that one <laughs> instrument marching band in the back? of People hated it. We were having so much fun in the garage. <laughs> it's where we want to be like the white stripes with two dudes and just a bass. <laughs> <laughs> just a snare. People thought it was the worst marching band. And this was a neighborhood where there was like a 10 year old marching band that would come by every once in a while. And they were great. That was fun. <laughs> they were great compared to us. Tom, I, I want to go back to way, way in the beginning before you got into video games, before you went to Micah, mm. go way, way back to where. It all began, Tom's story. 
It began on Tatooine. Um, I was a lonely child. <laughs> Don't for, lie to us. Don't lie to us. That's Star I love Trek. Star Wars growing That's Star up. Trek, like, and we all Star know Wars. <laughs> Star Wars. Star Trek's Star good Trek. too, but Star Wars would have got me started. My dad was a big movie guy, so we watched a lot of movies growing up. Uh, yeah. um, and I saw Star Wars and was hooked on that universe. And at some point, I realized that there was concept art mm. that someone had to design these spaceships. And I must have been eight years old. My dad was a military history fan. He had a huge library of books about the Civil War, World War One, World War Two, and I remember these books that had illustrations of the ships. And there was cutaways where there was the the ballast at the bottom, and then there was storage, and then there was the gun deck, and where the guys slept, and where they ate, and the canteens, and then the bridge. And I loved the description of all these places. And then I would see, I started collecting these magazines and books about Star Wars, and the same things existed. You can go oh, into any awesome. Barnes and Noble today and see illustrated, glorious books showing how the different ships in Star Wars are made. And it's all fiction. Like They're, they're imagining. Some artist right. somewhere has imagined what the inside of these ships look like. Right. That's the, Yeah. Someone had to come, that, come up with that concept art. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought about it. I did some research as I was growing up. My mom encouraged me to work at her architecture firm so i got my hands on some 3d cad software when i was very young and i then i had an internship when i was 16 at a very small advertising studio in connecticut called the ball and chain studio back in the 90s they did a bunch of commercials for stephen king it's pretty funny they oh, filmed nice. and edited the animation in their backyard they had this victorian house they had bought in stamford connecticut and they did all their shooting and filming on this uh, Victorian house, which was perfect for Stephen huh. King books. But the first thing I did is there was they gave me Lightwave, and I figured out how to model up an X-wing and a Tie Fighter, and I animated <laughs> this little this little animated scene between these two things. Nice. It was really cool. They also had a giant stack of those heavy metal magazines. You seen those oh, yeah. heavy oh, yeah. metal magazine? Oh, those yeah. are kind of those are kind of dirty. They're quite, but when you're a 16 year old kid, it's everything. Those things look amazing. Oh, yeah. this what adult like I'm, is. I'm looking at them for the illustrations, mom. Leave me alone. <laughs> it's forceful. Good thing is, my mother was pretty liberal in terms of the arts. She took me to uh, musicals and to Broadway plays. When I was 15, I think we went and saw Les Miserables on Broadway. Oh, nice. Yeah. And it was stunning. It was absolutely beautiful. So I was inspired by that. I had done some theater work, I had done some set painting work. And then I did some video work for this AV club that I belonged to in high school that was outside of school, but it was related to volunteering through school and through my church. So I was mixed intermedia mixing these different things in my life, CAD drawings, mm. illustration, concept art. I was the kid Saturday morning cartoons that had a sketchbook out and I was drawing GI Joe's as I'm watching GI Joe. I think I remember when I was like <laughs> seven, there was a competition, like draw a new G.I. Joe guy and send it out. My poor mom must have broken the bank buying postage because I had a new drawing every morning. Every morning <laughs> was a new a new character for G.I. Joe. I You're like, I'm going to win this competition. Right. <laughs> I was like surrounded by military types yeah. growing up. So the military really was what was actually the way into art. I, I thought I was going to be an aeronautical engineer or something when I grew up. My uncles were engineers and I thought I would work for some place like Boeing or Lockheed. That was the first dream. I would design real ships that were inspired by Star Wars stuff like the SR-71 Blackbird or the F-22 Raptor or one of these cool things, man. And then I took you know, 
high school geometry and got a D. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm not going to do anything with engineering. <laughs> Maybe I'm not an engineer. <laughs> right. But then I was in AP art, yeah. and I had this great art teacher named Dr. Yeah. Thomas Anastasio at West Hill High School. And he said, hey, you should do political cartoons, and you should draw um, some of these military-type things because there's global war going on. We have war in the Middle East. You should react to this kind of stuff that inspires you. And by the way, don't go to the military. I went there. He was in Vietnam. So he's like, if you can go to art school, you should go to art school. And he pointed me towards Micah. Really? Nice. Mm -hmm. So I had gone, what? just to give you context, I had actually, the previous summer, I was playing football and went to West Point for football camp. I was really serious about the military really? being part of my future at one point. And then that one teacher, you think, swayed you away from it a little bit? Absolutely. I took two 8P art history classes with him, and he was very serious. Tom, if you can draw... You don't need to go to the army. You can make a much better career doing something else. I didn't know it was going to be games at the time. I like I thought it was going to be film or television cartoons. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I think that's I, I I had the same kind of path going. You know, being an artist in high school, and you know, I I was I was kind of a an all around kind of general decent artist and so i didn't know there was something like that in in college so my idea was like well i'll be an illustrator because you know we all kind of start out the same way looking at comic books and cartoons and doing all that stuff so i was like well i'll go to mike and i'll be an illustrator and then when i got to mike and i realized there's general fine arts as a major which is just like you can do whatever you want <laughs> be a renaissance man which I, that definitely uh appealed so did to you, me more which you is, picked up landscape painting when you were in Micah, because you're, you're an outstanding landscape painter. You got your master's yeah. in it, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, for, for those of you who don't know, I have my master's in fine art, and I went to uh, you know graduate school in, at University of New Hampshire with a focus on painting. Um, so I have my, my master's of fine art in painting and mostly in landscape painting. But that was actually uh, a painting teacher that we had at Micah. I had Phil Koch. Did you ever have Phil? No, I didn't. Okay, well, Phil Koch is a painting teacher, and, and he introduced me to landscape painting through a, a fabulous uh, landscape artist who's still alive named Wolf Kahn, and uh, I just loved Wolf Kahn's paintings and, and fell in love with landscape painting. And I it, was so it, like, far actually, behind when it came to painting, so far behind. Yeah, I came to yeah. school with no oil experience. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I had I had a little, I had some, like, you know, acrylic. I didn't have any oil. I definitely fell in love with oil when I went into college. So there's just something magical about it. But really, it was like it was just that. It was just, and it was a great way for me to uh, combine the things I love, which is the same thing I do on the channel now on on the art of craftsmanship is doing things that I love to be outdoors with. So axes and knives and you know all that stuff is all it all like combines my love of nature with my love of art. And Can I just say it is so satisfying in your videos when you get. The the you when you dip the handle of the knife in the oil, <laughs> that like honey consistency of the oil. Oh man, <laughs> yeah. it's beautiful. I see why the bodybuilder is all about the oil. The body paint <laughs> and the oil makes it all look yeah. good. Oh, that's yeah. That's just one of those things. I mean, every anyone who works with wood, you know, when you hit the wood with the oil, it just makes all the grain pop, and we just make sure we get that good shot of that every time. Right, <laughs> mm. uh, um, Tom. I want to go back to. Star Wars, because I was actually talking to Dustin before this, going, we should ask Tom about what, what inspired him originally, what were like illustrators maybe, and I was thinking, I was like, is, you think it's something like Star Wars, or, I think that's a huge thing for a lot of artists maybe in your your group, or, or some people in video games, do you know the name of that original illustrator who did those? Ralph really McQuarrie. Right. I think it's Ralph McQuarrie or Ralph McQuarrie, I don't know how to say it. 
but he was the guy who pitched the original paintings that gave George Lucas uh, enough ammunition to go to the publisher, the, the, what's it called in film, who funds it, who's the big distributor to get the funding to do Star Wars. It was the paintings that sold it. Because Mm -hmm. before, it's really interesting. You should go back and watch uh, Jodorowsky's Dune and a few of these other like making of films where they talk about the importance of concept art and changing the film industry in the 70s. I think Disney back in the 50s had a bunch of amazing illustrators who could sell ideas with visuals. I mean, you go back to the space race in the 50s, right? It's amazing. Disney Plus right now, you can go back and watch like 1955, Werner von Braun pitching a (laughs) three-stage rocket to go to the moon. And it's all concept art. And it's before Sputnik even went up. And the reason they did that is because Congress was balking at this idea of spending billions of dollars to put men into space. But Disney and the rocket guys were like, we need to pitch this to Congress. We need to sell it in a way that is absorbable by the average American. So let's do it in animation. That's that's so true. So important. Yeah, there would be no Star Wars without the first few concept artists drawing lightsabers, drawing this really clean, beautiful imagery, right? Like the original C-3PO and R2-D2. They were a little bit different, but they were so well done. Before that, it was all sci-fi was kind of corny it was either buck rogers for kids which you know is is what george lucas eventually kind of took most of the things out you know he loved buck rogers but stuff like that it was all corny but that that concept art these beautiful paintings these Mm. these great landscapes and and characters that that sold it and go okay maybe it's not corny and weird maybe it can be a a beautiful film and there's so uh, many i mean i'm yeah my, my brain is is so excited about Star Wars, I don't even know what to say about it. But Lucas was inspired <laughs> by all the films that came before it. You have the Western, you have the samurai mm-hmm. movies uh, from Kurosawa yep. that inspired the right. hero's journey. And Lucas was exactly. talking to the guy who wrote the book on the hero's journey and was trying to con- consolidate all these different myths into one story together. 3PO that you mentioned was inspired heavily by the robot from Metropolis. Was uh, it yeah, Fritz that, Lang, 1930, makes- something like that? 3PO right. is an homage to that. Mm-hmm. Right, and and a lot of the stormtrooper gear is like you said, samurai. That's that's samurai masks. Oh yeah, the stormtrooper's helmet oh. is big time mm-hmm. samurai ma- helmet. Yeah, yeah, all that Kurosawa stuff. Great films. Yeah, and later in life, George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola helped Kurosawa. Um, I think it was Ron helped him finance. Without without them, Kurosawa wouldn't have been wouldn't able to have made his final films in color. Uh, like he never nice. wanted to do it, but they encouraged him. Said for modern modern times, because I think this was in the seventies or early eighties. You got to do a color film, but then he embraced it. He loved it, you know, because all those flags, yeah, those big samurai battles of all these different colors and greens and yellows and reds, and uh, yeah, without these guys, so so they were inspired by him. And then at the end of their lives, at the end of Kurosawa's life, they helped him fund his movies. Yeah, How that's cool. A, that's yeah that's a great example of just the cyclical nature of art and how it's inspirational and the reason why i'm a teacher now is because i had teachers that inspired me and the reason why they inspired me was because i i saw how inspired they were by their students and that was huge i was like oh that's what i want i want to have that inspiration that like constant inspiration to do something and make something better and have fun and so much of that 
from my teachers that I loved is that they were inspired by the students as well. And they could see that. And they'd yeah. be like, oh, this is great. You know, oh, I really love the way you did this, you know? And then they'd be like, I need, you know, I have had teachers be like, Oh, that's an awesome way to hit, you know, I'll try to, I'll, I'm going to try that in my painting later this evening. Yeah. And I was like, that's really cool to be able to be teaching someone, you know, come in as the the student, but then inspire the teacher. And then mm-hmm. that whole cyclical nature of that, that was really important to me. And the reason why I became a teacher. Not only do you have to, whenever you have to explain yourself, then you, you learn more clearly about what you're doing, right? When you have to go, because sometimes you just do something. Thing. Yeah. You don't think about it. Yeah. And when someone said, wait, why or how did you do that? And then you go, well, um, and then you go into it and then you <laughs> learn about it more. And like you said, being a teacher, you constantly have these fresh eyes on stuff. Yeah. So you don't In get my used career, to it. if I can add to that a little bit, something yeah. unique about Micah, I'm curious, Devin, what it was like when you went to school, but in comparison to other people I've worked with, other artists from Pratt or the Art Institutes or CalArt, uh, Micah stand, stood unique in that if a student had an idea, the teachers would typically let the student run with it. And then we would figure mm-hmm. out why that student was doing what they were doing, figure out what the inspiration was, and refine the method and the theory after the work had been made. And that was the process. Where a lot of other schools start with the theory, start with the lectures, and then the, the student is expected to craft something based on the formula that they've been presented. Uh, yeah, that's how it should be, be done. <laughs> um, New York Film Academy. I mean, they did it, but film school is almost like a tech school. It's almost it's almost like a trade. There's things art art you can just kind of run with, but there are specific things you have to do and learn technical issues. They have right. to learn to get to start out just to get a baseline of something decent. Make sure your audio is right. Make sure your iris is set right. Do this. Mm-hmm make sure your shots are this way and that way by certain, certain amount of degrees. Right. You have to learn those and you have to learn the cameras and you have to learn why things work. And then, then they'll let you, let you loose. They'll, then they'll start to give you, Hey, you need this with this. And then the next project will let you do sound. And then the, the next project will let you write something. And then it goes, it gets wider and wider as you go along, or at least it did in this particular right. one and a half, two year film school. I, right. I, I don't know about, other other bigger yeah and film i schools. i talk a lot about and the reason why our channel's name is the art of craftsmanship is because i always talk about how similar those two th- those two things are art and craft but i think you kind of identified it a little bit tom and devin to where the difference is sometimes is that in craft you're usually learning the technique first and then once you have the technique, then you can kind of go off of that and be, be more creative. I mean, that's, but, that's an art sometimes too. Yeah. It is. Right? Yeah, it is an art. Right. But, but like Tom said with, you know, at art school, they let you explore more. So they'll teach you a lot of times. I mean, studios are, you have your tools, you come on in, everyone, you have your stuff. All right, let's start drawing right away. There's no, like, think about the length of the arm. It's not really an anatomy class. Mm. It's a just draw. And then they'll give you techniques as you go. All right. If you're looking at it and you want to hold your thumb up, you know, at arm's distance, then you can measure your thumb and then you'll see how close that is to your measurements on your drawing. Right. I feel like oh, that, I feel that a lot of that comes from middle school and high school. And then you have to be talented enough. Not, not the, you know, the, the basics. Right. How do you shade something? How do you show perspective? Mm-hmm. You, by the time you get out of high school, if you don't know that, you're probably not getting into MICA. I mean, you might if you have these crazy concepts, but you need to know the basics to then expand from them and come back from them. Well, that's what I noticed when I got there is there were students coming out of magnet high schools like Carver who had extensive 
oil painting. And there's an, a mag, there's a magnificent oil painting teacher at Carver in Maryland. I've been yeah. told. So I would show up in my painting classes and I would get smoked by everybody. I mean, this is not my medium. <laughs> but meanwhile, Micah left enough space to develop your own skill set. So I was free to dive into the Wacom tablet in digital painting and animation and compositing animation with live action video with 2D animation because of the free form general fine arts department that Michael allows the students to do. So what what class was that when you first, you know, kind of explored and first learned about the Wacom tablet? Probably my I I would think it would have been my it would have been freshman year I took an ex what is it called? I had an animation class my freshman year, and I wasn't supposed to take it. I was actually testing out of Emac because we had this required oh, right. basic computer, like how to burn a CD, how to make <laughs> a MySpace media and culture. page. Yeah. Electronic yeah. media and culture. MySpace and page, yes. My friend Ben Harris and I were like, dude, we've been making websites since we were 13. Like, what is this? I'd already been doing nonlinear video editing when I was like 13, 14, and I'd been doing 3D animation when I was 16. Right. I grew up in a pretty fortunate place where I got to be exposed to these kinds of things. So at that time, I was able to test out Emac, but I had to take some kind of digital class. And I was thrilled when there was an opening in a 3D animation intro class. Uh, and I got nice. into this intro class as a freshman, and there were sophomores in that class. Um, our friend Jay Gillen, also a great guy yep. to probably talk to. He has a whole wood shop now, too. He makes tables and stuff and works in the 3D um, field, working for big, huge games. He was nice. a big inspiration to me. Throughout my my four years at college, and he, I think he had the tablet. He had the first tablet I saw, and he was doing digital texturing, painting textures on uh, characters using the tablet. I think that was it. Nice. Yeah, I remember. I, I came. I came to visit you one time at. Uh, I forget where it was that you were specifically. Maybe for Axis, mm -hmm. um, came to visit you there and played with the Wacom tablet for like an hour and mm -hmm. did a whole landscape painting. I was like, "This is crazy! I can <laughs> switch through colors so fast and change the brush size." And it was just nuts how fast well, it was. There's a give and yeah, take yeah. with everything. I noticed pretty quickly after taking a summer painting class with Bob Salazar, which was an outstanding painting class. I was looking at how long it took to prep and clean up. And I never liked the smell of the materials in oil painting. Um, <laughs> and art school has a very distinct smell. It's like one oh, third yeah. body odor, one third <laughs> medium, one third wood chips, and patchouli, cigarettes, and coffee. <laughs> yeah, right. Of, exactly. Walk around Micah sometime. If you're not an artist, you can go. Well, COVID now, but before COVID, you could have gone to the commencement show. And there is a, a distinct scent. It's not offensive, yeah. right? But if you go through the Fox building, you'll smell this like art maker's uh, space. That's, that's Maybe smell. Yep. Oh, it's wonderful. It's one. It's a creative yep. smell. It, it triggers me to want to draw something. It's pretty cool. But I was never good at that. So <laughs> when I got to the digital medium, I realized, wait a second, I was spending a third of my previous time preparing my canvas, preparing the space, Preparing the paint and mixing colors and another third of my time cleaning up. So in a three-hour session, I was only doing one hour painting. Digital, it's a minute and a half to start the computer and I'm painting for three hours. And I can save it. I can change it. I can do everything. The downside, you don't have an object that you can sell. The, the work right. itself is going to be cheaper. You can get to the eye quicker, idea quicker. You can demonstrate an idea faster. But then the object itself has less value unless it's a specific digital asset like a video game or an animation or a movie right 
Yeah. No, that's, that's, yeah, that's definitely something I think, like you were saying, you know, you, you, you're uh, cutting off your time in the preparation and like you said, stretching a canvas, things like that. And all those things, I always loved that part of it. Not necessarily the cleanup, you know, because nobody likes cleanup, but the <laughs> like the stretching the canvas and the object part of it, there was something super satisfying about that. Just stretching a canvas and gessoing it and it would be like tight as a drum and really clean and square. And I always loved that. I almost just wanted to take that prepped canvas and just hang it on the wall be like look how terrible. beautiful this canvas is so that <laughs> that's probably so a many part canvases. of your right. see yeah. that that must be the uh, some of the um that's the maker the maker, the maker side origins yeah it is you go and build right. something building a canvas yep. making a nice canvas and being just as just as like pleased with the canvas being done as i would be when i painted it or i was probably less pleased because i wasn't as good a painter <laughs> i was like oh man it's not nearly as nice as it was when it was just a canvas it was clean and white right were you and good we, at the wood um, shop before or was that something you learned at micah the the wood skills again? to building canvases is that something um, you learned at school or you knew you knew how to put canvases together before coming to college no i um i don't I don't think I ever stretched a canvas before college. Um, I had, I mean, my dad has always been a DIYer, so, or just a maker and he's always done stuff. So I have had some like building, um, and just making experience before going to school. But, um, you know, I think there was something that was really nice about the object that I learned. And then at school that there was, there was an element to the object. It's funny because I didn't go into sculpture. You would think that I would have gone into sculpture being like a object guy, but there was something really appealing about painting that I still love. And I still, I still do it. But I also just love that whole process of I mean, sculpture is just so inconvenient. You need so much. I mean, right. if you want to make money making sculptures, they have to be huge, right? For the right. most part. Yeah. But if we want to talk about brass tacks, like we know people who sell paintings for $20,000 each. Right. And I can't sell a digital poster for that. I mean, I can get paid a salary to work on a game that takes two or three years, and I'll make pretty good money doing that. But when it comes to making actual objects that have uh, a rarity, that's just not in the digital field at all. The whole market end is different. Yeah, they have an intrinsic value. Once you you make it, it has a value. And it's going to be... Yeah, it has a high value. Obviously, right. if you have a digital image, that has a value too. But it's, but like you said, it's not an object you can sell. Yeah, you know? and that that's a shame too. That's that's. I think that's everything digital right now. Music, yeah. art, mm-hmm. anything you can. I mean, it's so hard. You can't. People don't want to buy music. I mean, now there's streaming services, but the streaming services aren't paying people much at all. People are like, oh, it should just be, it's almost like you should just give it to us for free because it can be downloaded <laughs> because it can right. be split into zeros and ones and sent to me, not wrapped up nicely and, and sent out and I can smell it that maybe right. it should be free. But obviously that's far In the, the industry, truth. we talk about games as a service. And I think that's happened with music and television and movies. Look at Netflix. The people don't want to see commercials anymore, but they'll pay 15 bucks a month to have content. I think I have four streaming services right now. It's breaking the bank. But right. I, I gave up cable because it was too expensive, but now I'm paying just as much for television. I think YouTube's amazing. The content you guys make and the other makers out there, you don't need to have any kind of streaming service. You can just put up you can put up with the ads. There's enough stuff on YouTube to watch forever. And now it's the service, ad-supported service of entertainment and knowledge. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the great things. I mean, we've talked about it in the past, how Devin and I got into YouTube, um, with the mindset of like, let's create something that's 
has some value to it that people will want to see and learn from. Um, and then it was a side note. It was like, Oh great. We might be able to make some money off of this too. And that would be cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, uh, but yeah, there is, there is, I think that's uh, the great thing I love about YouTube. It is this is like free sharing of knowledge. Uh, so many people are on there and just making videos, whether they're really well produced or not, they have this desire to share and to spread this knowledge around. I think that's just awesome. And I, I've learned so much from watching YouTube videos. That's just, it's amazing. It's astounding. Yeah. Ditto. That's a, it's a cool, like uh, such a cool free source. Um, Tom, I want to go. So let's go from Micah to Firaxis. We haven't mm-hmm. even hit on this. Uh, Tom makes is concept artist and makes wonderful games and has for a long time. Things like, is it Civ five or four? I did both. I worked. My first job was actually Sid Meier's Pirates. I was an intern, and then I oh, my second internship game. was. Uh, you guys love Pirates. We got it at the Xbox, right? We, we love, yeah, yeah, love the Xbox. Version. Sid Meier's Pirates is really cool. I worked on that a little bit. I did some terrain art with Mike Bates, my senior uh, terrain artist there. Then I did an internship on Civilization Four, and then at the end of graduating from college, I got a full time job finishing Civ Four. The expansion packs and then Civ Five to put some numbers. I think Civ Four did like four million sales while I was there, and then oh, Civ shit. Five was gangbusters. That came out in 2010. I had worked on it for about three years, and that game I think to date has sold well north of 13 million copies worldwide. Mm. Yeah. No, I bet it's, wow. it's the it's the top strategy game of all time. That that set of games. I mean, there's a couple things close to it, maybe Command and Conquer, but not even because right. Civ Civ gets such a wide range of people some like the war part of it some just like the economic part of it yeah, just to right. play I, 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 wonderful i mean for i've always who, loved those games for, for your listeners who haven't played civ or heard of these kinds of games the type of game it is is a 4x game which stands for uh, explore exploit expand and exterminate which are the four different mechanics in the game and uh, <laughs> awesome. those these strategy games the player takes on the role of an ancient ruler or a mythical figure and has control over a nation or a tribe. And the goal was to grow your tribe from a barbarian band of settlers in 2000 BC up to the modern era in 2080 and where you have religion and the space race and tanks and science and universities. And the, the mechanics in the game involve diplomacy with other nations, trade. So people can buy this game and show it to their kids and the kids will hopefully learn about international trade. The people are demanding diamonds, but there's no diamonds in North America. We need to go find the Malian tribe, the Africans. We need to go talk to Cleopatra in Egypt. Maybe she has diamonds. (laughs) Hey, I'll trade you some beaver tails for your diamonds. Okay, what's the ratio to that? Well, maybe three to one. Maybe it's three beaver tails for every diamond (laughs) that we get back and forth. And the people are demanding. They demand the shiny objects. So the game teaches you about that. Well, what if Cleopatra doesn't want to trade you those things? And the people are going to revolt. There's no diamonds. We were pitchforks and torches, pitchforks and torches. Well, I guess I have to go invade Egypt now and get some diamonds. And then that's what... So the game hopefully teaches people a little bit about international diplomacy and how much of a devil do you have to be to to satisfy the people. Yeah, I'll say the one one thing that they got wrong was... And you could probably go into it. I remember playing as a kid and Gandhi, he was your leader for India. 
he was always so aggressive. He was a nuke. <laughs> yes, I can explain he, that. What happened he would was he he would attack everyone. And yeah, I think you can you can, go ahead go ahead explain. Do you know how math there's this thing where you can do if you divide by zero it breaks the computer. Like anytime you had a calculator in school, if you hit divide by zero, it just an error, right? That remember that? Yeah, <laughs> there would be like a black that, hole right where your your, your calculator right. was. The divide zero. by zero problem is real in game development. Usually, if there's a crash somewhere, it's because someone accidentally d- divided by zero. And it's not that they type divide by zero; it's that there's a variable that every once in a while comes up zero. Well, right. there was this case. I don't know why Sid Meier has his own coding language. So this thing has gremlins all over it. Wonderful guy, weird coding <laughs> language. Where Gandhi was so nice that there was a certain multiplier that the player could access that made him so nice that he flipped negative. He went all the way over the swing and came back around again and was nuking people. <laughs> so it I was an that. accident. It was an accident and it stuck. And the it's people direct. thought it was hilarious that Gandhi became a nuclear... Uh, domination guy if you pushed him too far and it just stayed in the game (laughs) and i yeah i remember that exact example because everything was kind of it made sense these guys were like this english were good with navy americans Mm -hmm. had like industry and they had nice planes but then gandhi was always such a dick (laughs) he'd be like (laughs) like god this and then yeah years later i think i read in some gaming magazine that there was this this crazy uh i i didn't know all about all about why but i knew there was a glitch and then they just kind of continue with it because it's fun let me tell a quick story about the intersection of art and games and history which i I now tell my students took me a long time to realize this the connectivity between art and the military i think is huge and it, it goes all the way back. We have portraits of all our leaders. Most of the leaders had some kind of military service in them. General mm-hmm. George Washington, uh, first president, had a big painting. Uh, the paintings of our founding fathers resembled the paintings that Napoleon had of him when he was a mm-hmm. commanding general. Um, all the big kings of England had their armor that was made. Um, I saw there was a beautiful show in the Met of Maximilian I's ceremonial armors oh, wow. and his nice. tournament armors. And these things are gorgeous sculptural artworks, and they're also functional for military purposes. Look back at Leonardo da Vinci in, in his resume that he made for the King of Milan or the Crown Prince of Milan. He listed 25 things, and the 25th was, oh, and I'm a painter. <laughs> nice. The first, and some of those yeah, things Vinci's where I can, design, I can design arms and airplanes and helicopters and fortifications yeah. and battlements, and I, I can do math and science, and that's, I think that's where the, the Renaissance man idea came from, someone like a da Vinci. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, I heard there's a term um, in uh, that's awesome. there's a term there's a term in aerospace. Real quick, I'm sorry, I keep talking. I'm okay. caffeinated up. That if it looks good, it'll probably fly good. And I think art has a lot to do with designing airplanes, even today. That resembling airplanes, uh, like like birds and other things, or fish. Uh, those aeronautical terms actually work aesthetically and aerodynamically. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, you see that in all sorts of obviously like sci-fi things over the years, like, you know, how much, how much, um, you know, like you said, machines and things are inspired by nature. Most of it is. Yes. It's yes. Just yes. like those Da Vinci oh. drawings, Da Vinci drawings of wings, you know, like he's right. drawing a bird that, you know, a whole thing that looks like you just putting on bird wings and a bird tail and then go fly. Obviously it didn't work very well, but a lot of, a lot of people tried. died that way. Yeah. <laughs> right. So for Axis, making making these games where we had these military and political figures throughout all of history, it takes artists to craft the likenesses of those faces. 
And that's what we did. And it was really funny. I had this this deja vu moment in 2011 working for Sid Meier on, a, on another game. We were doing a prototype of a Civil War game, a game where you were a commander, either Robert E. Lee or uh, Ulysses S. Grant uh, commanding the Northern, the Union Army, that he had a sketchbook. He had a book from when he was a kid. It was a book written in the 50s or 60s, and it had these drawings of the different battles and a, a bird's-eye view of Gettysburg and a bird's-eye view of Vicksburg with all the little, little toy soldiers drawn out. Hmm. And that reminded me so much of the books my father had when I was growing up. I saw the same books. I said, wow, this yeah. is where... This is where Sid's coming from. He wants to take these books and make them alive and make them interactive for people to play with. And then when they play with it, they learn. That's awesome. Um, so, yeah, that's – and I was actually thinking about that. Like the things that inspired you to to – you know, you kind of talked a little bit about the books that your dad had when you were a kid. And you were able to see like those cutouts and things. I remember those books too. Those were awesome. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I love that. I remember the Star Wars Star Wars one. Yeah, that one specifically. Like, oh, this is where they keep their waste. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> this exactly. is how the Millennium Falcon – this is what they do wondered, with their turrets. Like, how did the troops get out of the AT-ATs on Hoth? Like those, were they just free fall, <laughs> jump 40 feet? Right. Yeah, were they climbing down legs? Were there stairs inside? Yeah. Like, how do you yeah. know? They yeah. live there like a treehouse. <laughs> so one of the things I wanted, I wanted to ask you is, so when you're working in a firm, a video game design firm, I know there can be obviously huge firms with lots and lots of employees, but you can also have a fairly small firm. So how do you kind of divide up the job? So you like, you know, programmer, artist, uh, business people how does that kind of divide up in a firm and and who Great kind question. of you know because like obviously there's there's a connection between the artists and the developer the programming someone's got to write code and they're usually not the same people yeah, it's kind of true collaboration you have left brain people yeah. right brain people for an example civ 5 civilization 5 had over 50 developers on it and i want to say it was probably 20 programmers and 20 artists and generally wow. Generally, we call the artists and designers the content creator, but if the Venn diagram of content creator and programmer has a big overlap when it comes to the designer of the game. So unlike a graphic designer, which is just focused on the visuals for the most part, a game designer has to worry about many more things, including the mechanics of the game, sometimes the coding of the game, to an extent part of the architecture, and to an extent look and feel. Those designers are pretty outstanding people. At Firaxis, the whole team is built around the designer, and then the designer kind of dictates what he wants for the game, and then the producer, who's an, who's more of a manager associate, gathers the team and, and pitches the other departments for assets to go through. Uh, games will take years and years to make. A successful studio like Firaxis has a big pool of talent that typically rotates through the different projects depending on their level of finish. Right. So a game early on in prototype, which might spend a year in the prototype phase, will have a designer, a producer, maybe a lead artist, and maybe a lead programmer who are just mocking up the general idea of a game. And then they'll go through an, a pre-production phase where a few more people come on board to solve some of the technical problems, to ask more questions about the pipeline. How are we going to make the war chariot for this game? Is it going to have one horse or two horses? Is that horse going to be rigged and its legs going to move? Or is it too small that we don't really need the legs to move at all? Is it going to move quickly? Is it going to move slowly? So figuring out the art challenges and then talking to the engineers 
can we animate one of these, three of these, five of these things? Can we have a hundred of them on screen at the same time? And they might say, no, we don't have the performance for it, our minimum spec for the computers that we're going to ship on have these specifications. We can't have more than five chariots on screen at a time. So the arts, <laughs> artists have to go back and forth and figure out what can we do with the technical budget for what this game is expected to do for the client. Tom, that, that makes so much sense that you would be interested in film and also go to that type of thing because that seems so comparable to a film set, right? You can make it look as pretty as you want, but if you don't have the tech guys who, who light it well or you don't have the grips who are putting things upright or you don't have a good DP, it doesn't matter. So if you don't have the right um, engineers on a, on a video game or someone writing the code to make a gunshot feel good, or a hit feel good. People don't care what it looks like. You know, you could work all all year on making a great soldier, but if it's not fun to play, people mm -hmm. won't care. If the vehicle's not fun to drive around, or if the uh, the interface isn't clean and well mm -hmm. done, people will get aggravated and stop playing before they even get to that end game content that you want them to see. Absolutely, absolutely. I think, so, yeah, I think like the uh, uh, Minecraft is kind of a good uh, example of that because. Minecraft doesn't have to look amazing. You know, it's all like big like blocks and stuff, you know, but they have such a great, you know, base behind it. The 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 usage of that game where you can build stuff is so cool that that's there and what you're do you able to of, like sacrifice some of that. I'm sorry, the crafting like Minecraft. You guys are a crafting channel and yet there are these video games that allow people to do crafting in the video game. Isn't that something? Yeah, I think that's just amazing. I think it's so much fun. And, you know, so many of my students as an architecture teacher love uh, love Minecraft and love love games like that where they can build. And that's, I mean, that's a, I think it's a huge market to discount. If I were to discount that, that would be taking away from everything that my students are doing now. It would be like an old crotchety man. You know, why are you playing video <laughs> games? Just actually make something with your hands. But, you know, and I like to have them do some of both of them, but I let them use that technology to uh, to build yeah. designs on inspiration has to come from somewhere they're not yeah. going to build a house right away they might do lego which was mm -hmm. in our time it's the yeah. same thing as yeah. minecraft you get an idea if i remember making a lego battleship and they start to understand okay here's this this is where this you know yeah. this is where the control room is and then you start to oh, okay that's where things should go and this is why they go there so minecraft is the same thing hopefully it leads on to something else but you know it might just lead to more minecraft when you're older but i'm so happy you mentioned legos because playing with legos as a kid i played with them until i was 15 16 i was still building spaceships and x-wings and stuff i mean yeah. six to 12 be damned i'm gonna play with this thing forever <laughs> i i still get legos every once in a while yeah there was a point once i turned 30 and i was going i was we were walking to target and i saw a cool lego set I said, I don't care. I'm going to buy it. <laughs> Those are so cool. And you can go <laughs> my wife's like, my wife's like, why do you need Lego? I'm like, it's, it's for the kid. He, the, <laughs> our baby will have a wide range of Legos. I'm going to have pieces <laughs> from spaceships, from sailboats, and they, it, you know, I mean, I just want to build it myself. But but it's, it's fundamental to understanding yeah. space and object relations, mass conceptions. How do you assemble things together? I found that students who hadn't played with Legos or blocks. Were, had a harder time grasping virtual shapes in 3D Max and video games. If mm. you can frame mass conceptions with toys, you'll be when you're young, you'll be better at imagining mass conceptions in virtual space as an adult, I contend. Right. That's the truth. There's so many light bulb moments when you're putting together a big Lego set. 
Like, wait, what am I doing with this part? Why? And you build this whole long part. It takes you 20 minutes. And then you connect it to something else, and it fits perfectly. And you're like, oh, that's why. This moves this, and this moves these three other things, and now it's perfect. Yeah, I can see how that can uh, extend your expand your brain as a child. And I think that also, that kind of leads into thinking about what you were saying before about just building, you know, the, the, um, the economy or, you know, how, how a firm is built. You have all these different pieces that work together and you have to start, you kind of start with the basis. And then as you start, as the game progresses, then you bring in more people and you start in, into more and more details. And that, 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 exactly that reminds me of the way you work and the way I work as an artist as well is mm-hmm. where you're starting on the ground level. You're laying down these big areas of, of form and shape, and then you're going into smaller details and then smaller details and then smaller details as far as you want to go. But yeah, mm-hmm. you got to start with something there and that. So if, if you guys listening have not seen our uh, YouTube video where Tom and I, we did a collaboration. So I did a two hour landscape painting and Tom did a two hour digital painting of the same spot. So Tom was at his house. I was at my house. I got out, I set up, I took a picture and I sent it to Tom and then we started the clock and for two hours we worked on the same space. (laughs) And I think your, uh, your video is hilarious with how, how bitchy you were about (laughs) doing that. Indeed. There was no uh, tanks. What are you doing? What are you making? What is this? Just landscape? I got to draw grass. How much, how many blades of grass? You're like, you know, yeah, you're, you're like 40 minutes in and done what you're ready to do. Like now what else am I going to do? And I'm 40 minutes in. I've, you know, I just have just like a base layer of paint down because I had spent, you know, 25 minutes setting up and getting my paints mixed mixed. <laughs> but it can yeah, be overwhelming. Uh, it can be yeah. overwhelming looking at a complicated detail scene where you have these tiny abstract elements, which are, no, yeah. I should refine it. Tiny realistic elements being individual blades of grass in a landscape. And then how right. do how does the artist abstract that to make a shape that clumps many of these blades of grass together into a a single colored form? And you're able to do that because you have an eye that um, translates the world in an abstract way that goes from your eyeball to your brain, to your cerebral cortex, out your shoulder, down your hand, into the paintbrush. And that's that rough to finish approach. And translates enough information to tell the viewer what you're looking at. Like I don't have to paint every single blade of grass. I can paint an area of brown and green and yellow, and then right in the foreground, add a few little blades of grass, and it makes it. It reads okay. That's all grass, and that's. I think you do the same thing with what you're doing. What information do you have to give the viewer to to translate enough to have them understand what you're doing without having to go in and paint every single blade of grass like Andrew Wyeth. Right. <laughs> if you guys want to see that, that's painting, painting traditional versus digital landscapes, two artists, two hours. And that that's on our channel, but you can also look at Tom's channel on uh, turbo Simons. Uh, that's, that's his, he does. Um, also, he goes from the beginning to the end, pretty much. Usually sometimes there's parts, but, uh, awesome awesome stuff and and you you just like you can hear on here you hear him go through every little bit about why this gun is like that and they're awesome he, you do it on facebook too tom but i think the i, I don't know what's what's the main way to find what you main do? way to find i would recommend going to google searching turbo simons t-u-r-b-o-s-y-m-o-n-d-s my website is tom simons.com t-u-m 
S-Y-M-O-N-D-S, and I post things occasionally there. And then I stream, what got me into, I got to give you guys so much credit, because I saw you, Devin, and Dustin doing this project, which is the art of craftsmanship, and I was like, wow, this is really cool, this is really compelling. And I have known you two for so long, but seeing the work displayed in an easy digest digestible way with all the little details and the zoomed in elements. It was this catered kind of curated experience of how to do what you guys do. I think when you guys gave me really good feedback the first time I streamed and that was like, it's neat to see how you think. Like the way we make art is mm. also an example. It's a, it's appearing, it's a cutaway of our brains of how our thought process is. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's that's awesome. So yeah, so talk a little bit about how you what you do. So, you know, where where does your inspiration come from for those live streams? Uh, other first, than us, other than you guys. Well, I want to give back. Yeah, right. I, I went and taught at Micah in 2012 and 2014 because I had learned so much from being at Micah. I wanted to return the favor. It wasn't so much about getting paid extra. It was more about expanding my network and giving back to the students that were coming up. I, w I had been discovered when I was a student and that got me my internship that, got, that gave me a long prolific career in video games and I wanted to hopefully return the favor and be inspired too. So I've, I kind of believe in karma, not in the religious mythical sense, but in the if I do something sense, do something positive, then more positivity will come back to me. And then there, I know there are some friends that uh, like like getting something positive on their on their feed so it's a little bit about kudos for me like i'll do something that will make me feel good about being productive myself but also if i get on the internet and start sharing my process maybe that'll give somebody else courage to do their own thing for sure that see and you, you give it out and then you'll be old kurosawa one day and someone's going to fund your your final oh that would <laughs> be awesome this specific streaming <laughs> session became from COVID. We were all stuck at home. And I have to give credit to a MICA student I met uh, years ago at a drawing session at Dr. Sketchy's in Baltimore named Talia. And Talia wanted to start a group of, just a social group on Zoom where artists who are stuck at home could have conversations with other people. So I said, hey, I can pony up for a Zoom and let's do a, let's do Zoom meetings every week. And that's how it started out. Just let's do a meeting. Whoever wants to participate can share a drawing or share what they're working on. And I thought, hey, maybe I could do some tutorials, digital painting tutorials, and go through the drawing process. I think my first demo was on anatomy. I think I just did a general skeletal to musculature anatomy drawing. And uh, people thought it was really cool. And I said, maybe I'll just make this public. And then I got a bunch of friends on Facebook who said, hey, this is pretty cool, man. Non-artists who just thought it was kind of interesting to draw. And those people were, after I did the first one, they asked me, hey, how about more? My friend Brandon in Pennsylvania is an IT worker. He said, hey, dude, I love putting on, I love hearing you talk and draw while I'm at work. <laughs> it's, it's just something <laughs> yeah. more fun to do. <laughs> hey, I listen to podcasts. I'll put you guys on in the background while I'm working. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's the key thing too, is that I think so many people, especially now that we, you know, that we're all stuck at home during COVID to have you there talking to people. I know our other brother, Drew loves your live streams and Drew's has seen, I feel like he's caught like every single one. Drew's your Drew. second biggest. No, he's your first biggest fan. I'll say he I'm is. the second behind <laughs> Drew. I love everyone that's go so out, awesome. go to YouTube. Uh, Turbo Simons, it's so good. Yeah. You, you have to watch it, and and they're long, they're long form, kind of like our videos. But it, that that's what everybody yeah. wants now. Sure, I mean you can have your two or three minute things, but sit back, relax, watch for an hour or two, watch Tom do his thing. It's, yeah. it's amazing. You'll see why 
why he worked for Sid Meier's and Firaxis, why he is as good as he is. And you can watch his and listen to his mind work. Right. And that's the other great thing about when you're doing it, if you're actually doing a live stream and people can join in and they can be part of that conversation, which I think is just the, the most fun part about streaming. When I do the live streams on the channel, it's just sitting there and have a conversation with people that are watching and want to participate and be able to have those conversations. They can ask questions and then they feel like they're really part of what you're doing. They can really get into that. And that community building is just, it, you can't, you can't, I don't know. You can't beat it. It's so, awesome. Isn't it wild? Next. I listened to your guys first podcast and you're talking about how surprised you were from the response to it. What if, what are you realizing now? It's been a year or more. What do you think? About, about what, you know, about, about the YouTube channel. Yeah. Like, are, isn't it wild? Like, I think people want to be part of something like you just said, they want to be part yeah. of the tribe. They want to be part of a group. They want to be called makers and it gives you confidence knowing how to do something or working on something else. Doesn't it make you feel like a little bit of light? Like ah, I'm a member of this humanity. I can contribute. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely does. And that, and, and seeing it grow quickly, which was like you said, we, we were kind of surprised, but it really does reinforce the fact that people are out there who want to be able to communicate with you and want to connect in a way that's not just topical. It's not just, just a Facebook picture that they want to actually participate and they want to be part of the conversation. And I think that shows itself through really positively sometimes and also really negatively. Unfortunately, some people <laughs> want to just, they want to contribute, you know, the trolls want to be part of it too. And they want that response. Um, so that's why I love to try to try to beat the trolls, try to be their game and try to be real nice to them. And then they're like, Oh man, they feel bad about it. And they're like, then the conversation goes back and forth. Sometimes you're like, ah, I beat you. I won. The last like, stream yes. I did, I talked about how the internet is like a mosh pit right now. Like people just need to get out their anger somehow. And sometimes right. like, oh, I, yeah. I don't think the internet has this troll army. I think everybody has a troll moment once in their life. Like you become a troll because you get fired up. Maybe you had too much sugar that day and you didn't get out on your elliptical <laughs> and exercise. Or you didn't get on your sailboat and calm yourself down. So you, you let out your aggression in the internet on some comment on some poor maker who didn't deserve that at all. But it just comes out. And I think there's a, what's more likely is a lot of the negative comments are really just somebody having a bad day. Yeah. No, I agree. I think you're right. I think, uh, yeah, unfortunately people have that, that protection, you know, it's this filter over top of them that they can, they can say things because if they were standing in front of that person, they'd probably get punched in the face, <laughs> right. but you know, but so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a release and sometimes I think people need to do that. And I, you know, I can definitely, you know, I can verify that because I have had the conversations with people on the comments where I'll kind of go back and forth with them just a little bit. And at the end they're like, okay, yeah, right on, man. I hope you do good. Right. Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. But I think, of course. I, I mean, mean, I don't do it that and often. And the internet obviously is so you're, you're getting a worldwide uh, view on, on whatever you're doing. So there's, I'd say at least one out of a hundred people are either idiots or jerks. Right. So then you, you get go up by a million and then you go up by 10 million and then you get yeah. the old earth. Yeah. So then you might get a hundred bad comments. Yeah. Those are the dummies. Right. Right. Like don't, I heard don't, a, worry, don't worry about it. In the workplace, it takes seven optimists for every pessimist. <laughs> to fight him too. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's why, it's why Emperor Palpatine was able to beat all the Jedi. <laughs> That's funny. Right. That, that gets in you that, that, uh, that negativity. Yeah. Right, you can have ten good comments, and then you remember the stupid one, bad one. Yeah, but uh, Tom, I got a question for you. Uh, Shoot, you know we ha we haven't pre prepped you for this one. Ooh. 
since you have the inside view, right, on how things are created in video games, but you're also a video game lover, what is your greatest video game of all time? Your favorite. My favorite or the one I worked on? The you, one- no, the, your favorite of any. My favorite of any uh, it was Half-Life 2. I think Half-Life 2 was the peak of the medium. And it has to do with storytelling and timing and pacing. You have amazing character animation, a really deep story, and a, 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 a pacing in the game where it's not constant combat like Call of Duty or a PUBG or something. It's right. paced so that there is a tutorial, a combat sequence, and then a puzzle recovery sequence. So mm. you're not in this high anxiety pattern for the entire gaming experience. It's, it's paced very, very well, almost like chapters in a book. And it has a beautiful score and a beautiful setting. I think it was made in Seattle. and then they, But they based the game to take place somewhere in futuristic Ukraine, I think, Odessa. But they, those two places have a very similar setting. I've talked often about how game, games look like where they're made. It's just like artwork. It's like your right. landscape painting. Like your landscapes, you're hopefully inspired by what's like, around you. Yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. There's the Mid Atlantic style. I think a lot of the companies in the Mid Atlantic area have games that look like the Mid Atlantic, and games in California look like they're from California, and games made in the Pacific Northwest look like forests and trees and moss and and Rivendale from Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And that's why like Weta has to be in New Zealand. Like when you get you only right. get Lord of the Rings if you have the entire studio there making the entire middle earth in new zealand yeah right and then (laughs) then it feels more authentic so i felt like half-life felt very authentic that's awesome i I agree that's a great game it's not how about you what do you guys like goldeneye what are we playing what are we talking (laughs) about i uh i I think mine is um super mario 64 oh man that's probably my favorite of all time just because of i mean i I basically became friends with now my best friend and who was the best man at my wedding because he got a Nintendo 64 and told me to come to his birthday party because he was getting that and getting Super Mario 64. <laughs> that 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 kept us together through many years and many arguments. <laughs> We'd I'd always come back cuz he had that game. But yeah, <laughs> well, just the uh going from I think at the time we either had Nintendo or maybe Sega. So when I went over to his house to play uh Super Mario 64, it blew my mind. Obviously, the the beginning of 3D environments, open worlds, uh, puzzles, different lands, and things to find, right? Constantly keep you coming back. I got to get that other star. I got to get that other thing. Mm-hmm. L- love that game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nintendo is excellent at making joy in their games, making you feel happy at accomplishment. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. You can learn so much about people yeah. by playing games with them, can't you? Like, uh, depending, yeah. if you're couch co-op, like, how often they pass the controller to you lets them know how good of a friend they are. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you're up, you're up. Yeah, right, exactly. Or, or a game's so stressful that you want to pass the controller. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I did that level. Your turn, man. Like, no, man, you keep going. No, I'm good. Your turn. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, you're, like, holding it out. That's like uh, my my daughter and I and my wife, we all played Zelda Breath of the Wild recently. So good. We played the whole game, but we all played it together. You know, it was like we would just take turns because there's so much to do. And my wife and daughter, they would both be playing. You know, they'd play and adventuring and doing whatever. And then they'd come to a big battle, and they just hand it off to me. Here you go. Time to fight. <laughs> I'm like, all right. But the, the fight design in that game is so good that yeah. you you kind of you want to do it yeah absolutely i loved it <laughs> i'm still playing it right now i'm uh, that game's absolutely incredible the depth of the systems in that game the beauty of the world 
The, mm. Who would have thought that cooking food in a video game would be so rewarding? <laughs> the Japanese. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Oh, Japanese. that's it. <laughs> yeah, that, and that, yeah, it's just like what you said about, you know, you have that break, just like in Half-Life. That uh, game has so many of those breaks in it where you can fight mm. or you can ride around a horse or you can, you know, jump off a cliff and just float around. Right. Speaking can, of lovers of many things, that's yeah. the Japanese. Everything they do, right? That they have long cooking sequences because they know there's masters in cooking and they yeah. respect that. They have other other. They have beautiful scenery because there's there's masters in that. There's times where we have to get a certain angle right and capture like that picture painting. Yeah, mm-hmm. because it's it's perfectly uh, composed. Yeah, and I'll, I'll take uh, credit for for the Breath of the Wild thing for Corinne <laughs> because before before I came over, she was playing Wii and some game where she fed a cat. I was, and she was she was like seven. I was like, all right, you're old enough now. It's time, it's time to get maybe a switch and maybe get Zelda, get something that you'll really love oh, and yeah. uh, play for a long time. So nice, awesome. well done. Yeah, that, was, that was so good. Yeah, we played through that all the way. Oh man, what a great game! <laughs> yeah. That, yeah, that that whole mentality of of loving everything about something and not just one little thing. It's like. Uh, George Nakashima with his furniture, he loved the the look of wood, the natural look of wood, but then you put like one butterfly wedge in to hold a crack and it's just in this giant you could have a giant wooden table and the entire thing, you know, and you have this one piece of craftsmanship that like accents the whole thing and you just see the grain come through and you have a wedge holding it together and the legs are simple, everything else is simple, but it's just the glorious part of every part of that piece of wood. You know, everything held together is do you have a favorite part of the process, Dustin? Maybe you've talked about it on your show and I missed it, but do you have a favorite moment of when you're making a knife? Hmm. Well, that's good. I mean, there's there's nothing quite like the finished piece, just holding it in your hand and using it. You know, all of these, I've, I've put time into cutting out a blade, getting it the shape I like it, then I put time into grinding the bevels to be really nice, you know, an edge right down the front edge. Then I've done my heat treat and you put time and effort into getting that right and quenching it really well. And then you put all this time and effort into getting the handle scales really nice, glued up well, and then you shape everything. So it's all these pieces and each thing is different enough that it holds my attention along the way. But then at the end, it's just that culmination of all these things. You kind of put it all together you know, you're shaping the handle and you're starting to feel it. I think that might be even, it might be the, the, that moment when the handle starts to feel really nice in your hand and you feel like, Oh, this is something I can actually hold on to and use really mm. well. You know, obviously then you dip it in the oil, like we were saying yeah, earlier, I love and you the see oil. the green but pop, this is fascinating. You know? Like I love your answer because it's so different from mine. I like the beginning parts of the game project because it's figuring out what we're doing. And unfortunately in my career, the ending has never been great, unfortunately. Like there's always some kind of drama. And in working for a private company, you have very strict limits on budget. If you're working for a public company, you have very strict limits on time. Because the right. public company has to release a certain game on a certain quarter and a certain schedule to make the investors happy. So in either case, you're typically compromising heavily to get the game out to the consumer. Right. Either on the production level or the depth of the gameplay, the mechanic is always some kind of compromise. And sometimes there's bugs. There's like game-breaking brutal bugs. So when the mm-hmm. game is supposedly, quote-unquote, done and shipped, 
there's typically more work still to do that we never either never got to or had to shell for the expansion pack so that the end of the game process is actually really frustrating and those last six months before the game comes live people are crunching they're working late hours it's not the joyous kind of development i think the joy in game development would be like around month five or six when you have a prototype and you have the the genesis like the embryo of an idea and you have like a mechanic We're like ooh, this mechanics fun and the, the whole game right. is a bunch of pick boxes and blue spheres and you're it <laughs> it's like making right. your own playing card game out of shards of paper and napkins like you're like okay, pretend this uh playing card is going to be the the mage magician king person right. and then, then this <laughs> this thimble is going to be the player and then this uh, usb cable on my table is going to be a snake monster and you're kind of right. pretend it's all potential at that point right everything's wide open it could be the greatest game of all time in the beginning mm -hmm. and uh <laughs> i think that's also that i think that like lends itself to your your mentality as a maker you know you enjoy the making part of it you know, and I think that I think I have that as well. But I think, like I said, each of those parts that I do, I get to like make all these separate parts and then put it together, and mm -hmm. then it's actually made something functional. Which I think is the difference between art and craft is that you end up with a different type of functionality at the end. Where with a painting, I I agree a hundred percent. When I'm working on a painting, it's about the process that I love. It, mm. The the ending, the final piece when it's done is okay but there's always something there that is just not right like van gogh said you know i think it was van gogh that a painting's never done or a piece of artwork's never done it's mm. always just you get to a point where you will stop or you have to you but have it's not to. done but for for something that's crafted i think it gets to a point where it's done and sometimes you do have to make those um you have to kind of figure out where you can skip over some things that don't necessarily matter and where things that do matter, you know, what, what does it look like in the outside? Maybe there's a chip of wood underneath inside of a shelf that'll never be seen. So you might let that go because you know that the front has to look a certain way. You might spend a little bit more time on that or in a knife, you know, I have to make sure that when I glue up the handle that it's really even around the edges because that's what you're going to see that line between the, the wood and the metal. But if the right side of my handle isn't exactly symmetrical with the left side of my handle, you might never see that. So it's like, but all these little pieces come together and form something at the end of a craft that makes that presentable piece. It's a consumable. It's something at the end where an art art piece is all about creation. So uh, it is a little different. There. I would, I would, yeah, I would. And it's, Right. If you're making not, it's not a simple tool, but you're making a tool that may not be the best, but it can still do it like a knife could, yeah, it could also right. be a sharp rock yeah, and you can yep. use it to cut. But I would say almost video games are like you get 95% of the where the, you get 95% of the way there. And then if the last 5% doesn't work, you ha you have nothing. It's almost like you build a car mm -hmm. and then the, the, the electrics are wrong and you can't turn on the headlights. Right. Mm -hmm. You've gone through every, or the engine won't turn over and you just, Wait, why? <laughs> what do we do? We built this whole car, every single part of it. We designed it and we got everything and it just, it won't run. Right. Or we need lights. Right. Do we have to rerun all the wires? Why aren't the lights on? It's some appalling number of players don't even make the end of video games. You have to finish the game design in order for the reviewers to play through it and give you a score. But it's something like not even 10% finish the game like in civilization oh, yeah. the number of players that get to 2000 ad is like five percent usually something That's goes off the rail crazy. or they get boring <laughs> and they go back and restart it's pretty <laughs> wild so then that's why, like Zelda: The Breath of the Wild, like the, the end boss. If you've done everything in the game, the end boss is pretty easy. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. It was What's, surprising. I know. I was kind of surprised. And, and then you want to continue play though. That's, yeah, that's and then, the thing. Yeah, and then what about you, yeah, Devin? What, what's your favorite part of the filming and editing or shipping process? What would you? What do you like the most? Uh, I would say editing, finishing it up. It would be the finishing, <laughs> getting it clean, because you kind of already know where you're going, and unless something goes terribly wrong and there's a glitch in something, and it, you keep getting black frames when you export it, that's annoying. But I enjoy once it starts coming together, and then I I sit back and have a few beers and watch it over and over again. Like I gotta, I, I gotta watch it once, make sure there's nothing wrong with it, and I'll watch it, and I'll just stop each time there's something and fix it, change the volume here and there. Okay, watch it and watch the whole thing, and I'll export it, and watch it again, and then send it to YouTube. But by then, I'm a little sick of it. But I, I enjoy <laughs> finally when it. Oh, all of a sudden, it's something. Before it started at 700 clips, and now it's something with music. Is that it's how you know you're done? It's when you're sick of it. When you're physically repulsed <laughs> yeah, by when, what when you I, made. When I don't want to watch it again. I'm like, all right, it's out. Fine. They can have fun, they can have fun with it. That, that relates perfectly to painting. Is that, you know, I'll work on a painting for a while, and then I'll set it up across the room, maybe even upside down sometimes, and I'll just live with it. You know, kind of look at it across the room, and I'll watch TV, and I'll look back at it, and just wait for those things to pop out from it that that are calling me to change it, or, or something that's obvious, that's glaring. You know, and then I might work on it some more, and then i got to set it across the room for a while or turn it upside down and look at it in a different way. Just like that, that process of finishing, that is pretty fun. I do. I like that a lot in painting mm. that, yeah, it, you know, get to a point where you're ready to get rid of it. <laughs> I think that's why Da Vinci never finished uh, the Mona Lisa. Cause she's just so boring. <laughs> he's like am i done with this no it's not physically dumped i'm so bored what's this expression gonna be and he changed the expression five thousand times and then it's like instagram like some model who's like kind of smiling at you but you're not sure like is she into me or is she just into herself in the picture and the reflection i don't know man my monkey brain can't process these things <laughs> it was just there like what is this face saying to me i don't know it's fine he just like he just reached over this brush and just swung up the corner of the lip a little bit there it is it's done well, <laughs> it's in the background da vinci has i mean the mona lisa has the same look of our dear woodworker friend uh lauren lauren has the same look where she's like half masked eyelids and you don't know is she like is she on something or is she just that chill all the time <laughs> and like is yeah, she, does she like what she's looking at or not i can't tell but she's hey man can we just go to the museum and you just don't know what what is she what is she emoting right now it's such a alluring and um, enigmatic look Right. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Well, we are getting to the point where we're an hour and 21 minutes in, uh, and we're going to finish the podcast and we're all going to make a recommendation. Uh, we reached out to Tom to let him know we usually do this. So hopefully he's got something good too, but I'm going to let Devin start this time around with his recommendation for you guys for the end of the podcast. Yeah. Uh, we're, like we said on the other podcast, it won't always be small things or small channels. It's anything we think's good we think is good, whether that's a YouTube channel book or Instagram girl that you want to see her smile. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm I'm just going to do a meat eater with Steven Renella. That is a, um, he's a, an outdoorsman. He's a hunter. He's on Rogan, right? Wasn't he on Joe Rogan a couple times? Yeah. yeah I think yeah. that's where I actually heard of him. Rogan's first, talked about that Joe book Rogan. a bunch. Yep. I'm avid, or, uh, avid outdoorsman. Um, conservationist writer he has a great podcast he has a great tv show that's on netflix meat eater he's got um a book a great cookbook uh 
I actually got from my father-in-law on how to cook anything. And there's a, if you're not into hunting, I understand. And I can understand how it can put you off with the wrong person after they shoot something, hooting and hollering, getting Mm. crazy, picking it up, and not treating it with some type of respect. And I think that's what Meat Eater does best. There's always a respect for it. They're always going to use all of the animal. They're, They're... they're teaching you how to conserve the land and they're they're fighting for a lot of things in government how to make bigger parts of land more accessible to the public not only to hunt but to live in and to camp in to kayak in right uh yeah that that whole group of guys are great and they just started doing a lot more on youtube so there's a bunch of hunting videos uh cooking videos really great stuff uh, beautifully shot um, I, I just love that guy and their podcast is great too, meat eater. So if you guys haven't checked that stuff out, you have about a hundred hours of content ahead of you. Yeah. I like the, really quickly. I like the argument that they make that the death that the hunter gives the animal is a better death than they would experience eating, eaten by wolves or bears or something like that. Right. Right. A deer is right. either going to freeze to death, get eaten by something or so. And that's, they also get, they, there's a lot of their episodes on meat eater that you'll watch it for an hour and they don't get anything. Yeah. Mm. Because yeah, they didn't, they didn't yeah. want to take the shot, and right. they also made the program where it's just them traveling to a beautiful place. Yeah, and yeah, we didn't get anything this time, but that, that's what we're going to show you. Mm. And and they're not just going to fake something and drag some dead body up and be like, "Hey, look what we got." They just wrap it up like, "Hey, we didn't get it this time." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> come in, come in next yeah. week. And I think that supports the fact that they are their love of nature and their love of the the like being out there and being in the landscape and participating in this primal thing that we've all done as humans for so long. Right. And, and, and I understand if you're a vegetarian, I I get it. And there's a lot of good points in that, but there's also points in, if you aren't, then you shouldn't be attacking people for shooting their own food necessarily. Dude, five bucks says that, that, that I think the Patriots are going to have Cam Newton eating steak again. I think I think Belichick's <laughs> going to have them. You know, you need a steak or two. None of this vegan business anymore. We need to win championships. <laughs> right. You, you can't you can't yell at people for shooting a deer and then go to McDonald's and have a chicken sandwich. Right. That that you, you make you're arguing against yourself there, or or having hamburgers and you feel good about yourself because you didn't actually do the killing. If you actually go and do the killing, maybe you'll have a better perspective of what it takes right and a better respect for the animal that you've harvested yeah and as a you know i'm a i'm not a hunter and to me one of the worst things in the world could be people who are not not the worst thing in the world but something that really turns me off is sport hunting people who hunt for sport right that's well, something that's like that's, trophy hunting you mean yeah exactly trophy hunting but so many people that i know who are hunters and so many people whose parents and fathers are hunters in they're all about the respect of the land, the respect of the mm. animal, the respect of the the time and effort and skill and craftsmanship of what hunting is. And you know, they, they they're that's it's mostly about the respect. And that's you know, I've definitely found that to be more of a you know, more, way way more people who are hunters are hunters for the right reasons. Like our father was a hunter. You know, he hunted because he had four boys. Yeah, because we <laughs> ate a lot, <laughs> and you and can, we didn't have a lot of money. You so. can, yeah, you can right. you can get one deer and, and feed your family for a year right yeah and there yeah there's uh just respectful ways to go about it and uh but also some of the certain things certain hunters they pay for the conservation yeah not random people donating it's people buying tags 
that what that's what pays for the conservation in this country and taxes on certain hunting guns and gear. Yeah. So you can you can argue about it all 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 the all around you want, but <laughs> uh, you know. And I, I don't even hunt. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm fighting for it, but I, I think I wouldn't mind doing it. Yeah. All right, Tom. What do you got for us? Recommendations. Uh, we're talking about Rogan really briefly. The Meat Eater podcast. Some somebody that Rogan turned me on to was. Brett and Eric Weinstein, the intellectual dark web guys. When I feel like social media has made me dumber, I want to get turned on and be smarter again. And listening to a theoretical mathematician talking about the universal theorem of everything, or uh, Brett, his brother, talking about how you know evolution of the species and how bad medical science has led to bad medicine and how to how, ways to correct that and make for a better future. So I'm, I'm on board with either of those two podcasts. The portal is by the mathematician, Eric and the dark horse podcast is by his younger brother, the um, evolutionary biologist, Brett Weinstein. That's awesome. Nice. Yeah. That's uh, I think our, our friend Trevor, um, he was a friend of Tom and I's from, from college. It was in our same year. Very um, handsome. Man. Me- looks like Joseph, Joseph Gordon Levitt. <laughs> also looks like, uh, Joe Robinette from, uh, from YouTube. If you guys know him, <laughs> um, <laughs> but he, uh, he told me one time or something, we were had a conversation and we were hanging out probably after a party and everyone else had left and we were just chatting. And he said, one of the things that he always loved about being an artist is that as an artist, we have this kind of abstract mindset. So we have an open mind to things where you know we could have a conversation with a scientist or a doctor you know and be able to grasp enough of what they were saying to have an intellectual conversation um where on the other hand a lot of times you're trying to talk about art with someone who doesn't have an art mindset it's hard for them to talk to you about that so those one of the great things about being an artist and a creative person is that we were really able to kind of grasp these abstract concepts from other fields that weren't our field of knowledge specifically and have you know meaningful conversations with other people about that it was Mm -hmm. always kind of fun Mm -hmm. i think yeah i think makers and artists just have an appreciation of many things right so then you can appreciate someone else who loves something else and and really get into it. yeah you're right now that uh, they find beauty in something else right. Japanese find beauty in cooking rice for sushi mm-hmm. and either you think oh that's dumb it's just rice or you think okay wow they really they have a great perspective so you tell me they take five years to learn how to cook the rice that's that's amazing all right well I'm gonna finish off the podcast with my recommendation this week and uh, I want to highlight a, a knife maker in Colorado his. Uh, Instagram page is at Wanta Forge, which is W-A-N-T-A-F-O-R-G-E. And he is just a fabulous knife maker. He really uh, focuses on kind of trapper style uh, knives. So a little bit more like brute to forge. So a knife that, you know, might have been uh, hand forged, but then they leave some of that hammer marks and things on it. So you get this kind of uh, handmade feel to them. They have all sorts of great shapes, all sorts of beautiful wood handle, but it really has this kind of bespoke feeling to it where it's this older historic look to these uh, beautiful knives. He does mostly knives. He does some tomahawks and things like that. And I was, I was thinking about him the other day because I was remembering, I was remembering one of his knives and I couldn't remember his name. So I was kind of searching through all these knife makers on, uh, on YouTube. And I woke up this morning and it just popped in my head, like, boom, haunt of words. That's the one. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he's just got this beautiful style about knife making and just the, 
the way that he can make a knife really simple where it's just a, a wood handle with the blade coming out of it, maybe like a hidden tang. It doesn't have to be super fancy or some, you know, crazy beautiful wood or perfect design or perfect, uh, bevel grind. It just has this really great natural feel to it and historic feel. And it just feels like that tool that we all know and has been part of our psyche as humans forever. Uh, yeah. So again, Wanta Forge, W-A-N-T-A Forge on Instagram. Just a really awesome knife maker. That's a nice cool. shout out. Yeah. Well, yeah, Tom, we love you. Everyone, you got to check him out. Tom, I love where, you can, too. Where, can, where can everybody find you? Uh, I would say the Turbo Simons YouTube channel, T-U-R-B-O-S-Y-M-O-N-D-S. I have the fortune of of being named the same as a rugby player from Australia and a BBC nice. reporter. So I'm like the fifth Tom Simons on Google, not not anywhere near the top. So Turbo Simons is the name, even though I'm not fast at all. It just there sounds cool. Go. Sounds space. <laughs> you, you draw fast. You do draw fast. Oh, okay. Maybe I'll use that. Thank you. I love you guys so much. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening today. Uh, again, this is the Art of Craftsmanship podcast. You guys can find us on the Makery Network, uh, which is just an awesome network of maker podcasts. And you can find us on all your normal podcast places. Uh, and also, please check us out on YouTube at the Art of Craftsmanship. So thanks, everybody, for listening today. And we will talk to you next time. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.